0: The following message is entitled, Proven Faith, Fired Up Faith. This message was given during the evening service on January 29, 2023 at the East Side Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. Tonight's sermon title is Proven Faith, Fired Up Faith, as the note sheet points out. We are once again in 1 Peter chapter 1. Still in verses 6 to 9, the third series from 1 Peter, as I've outlined it, a joyfully suffering salvation. We finished verse 6, and we have finished our study of suffering up through gold, which is perishable, in verse 7. And now we come to the last part of verse 7 that states even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your note sheet review is between the dotted lines under the sermon title down to the second dotted line. That's the outline. Christians are to be joyful despite trials. That's verse 6, verse 7, Roman numeral 2. Christians are to be joyful while suffering for Christ as proof of saving faith, verse 7. We've looked at the first half of verse 7. Joy while suffering for Christ is the proof, not the only proof, but a supremely superior and important proof of saving faith. In order that the proof of your faith let me remind you again it is not joy concerning the suffering it is joy while suffering it is not joy directed towards the suffering go back to verse 6 in this you greatly rejoice it is joy concerning your salvation while we suffer suffering brings much agony distress and grief the opposite of joy is not grief. The opposite of joy is depression and hopelessness. One can grieve while still suffering because grief is not the opposite of joy. The Lord had grief in the garden when he was seeking to take up the cup and die as our Savior on the cross, but he never lost his joy, according to Hebrews 12.1. We must not be confused on this. We are not to laugh hilariously with a smile on our face, the more we're tortured for the faith. That's not the issue. That's not what's being taught here. We rejoice in our hearts with upliftment that we're going to heaven the more that we're suffering for the faith. It is the proof that we are truly saved. So the defining issue is proven faith in verse 7. Letter B, the nature of proven faith. We've studied that. In your review, proven faith is more precious than perishing gold. I attempted as... Fallibly as I possibly could to make a comparison between the supreme value of gold compared to faith, I feel that I've fallen short miserably in trying to make that comparison because the comparison is astounding. In a world in which gold is so cherished and money and wealth is so honored and respected, people respect rich people far more than they respect poor people. It is hard for us to comprehend. That having joy in the midst of suffering for Christ is from God's point of view so much infinitely more precious and valuable than that. And now, point number two, above the dotted line, we've just started in our starting tonight. Proven faith will continuously be tested. Fill in the blank. Proven faith will be continuously tested. There's no vacation from this. After the rolling thunder of one trial for the faith slams into us, we would imagine, okay, Lord, thank you. I've gotten the message, and the message is very clear. I need to rejoice in my salvation while suffering. No need to try me anymore. I figured it out. Thank you very much. Glad that lesson's over, Lord. No, this is built into your Christianity and mind. As hard as it is to accept that in a society like ours, it's built in. Last night I was uh, reviewing photos from 1941 Germany in the infamous pogroms that were taking place, persecution of Jews. You can't look at those horrific photos of torturing of innocent Jewish citizens by wicked adults and youth and not see man's inhumanity to man. It is just so shocking how evil mankind is. And they were tortured simply for being Jews. I was talking to someone the other day, and it may have been someone here at church, I don't remember, because I'm focusing right now in three different directions, but you would assume in our country that two persecuted groups would be allies, Jews and blacks, but they're not a growing amount of hatred towards the Jewish people is in the writings of black literature, which is astounding to me. You think one persecuted group would certainly have an ally in another. And then you look at liberal Christianity, and you would think, well, we Christians are persecuted, so we would be allies of Jews. No. Again, no. Evangelicalism has long since run off the rails of biblical orthodoxy. And most denominations that are evangelical and claim to be Christians say God is done with the cursed Jews. Go all the way back to Martin Luther. Martin Luther despised the Jewish race. He, even in the midst of seeking to turn people back to the Bible, believed they were cursed for putting Jesus Christ on the cross. He used profanity in his writings at the end of his life towards the Jewish people. He hated them with such pure hatred, he was cursing them in his writings. The father of the Reformation. Skeletons in the closets of men and women that we think are holy and righteous. Not everything is as it should be. This is the way it is. Who gets persecuted more in this world? Jews? or Christians. Well, just by the sheer numbers of those who are Bible-believing Christians, most likely outnumber the Jewish people today. Christians are facing horrific persecution, and you would think that even liberal Christianity would ally up with those who are persecuted as well, but it's just not to be. So, not only are Jews hated in many ways not completely or totally but in many ways in our culture by the black community but also by liberal christianity and then christians are being renounced as racist by the black community bible believing christians and also christians are persecuted by liberal christians and ironically bible believing christians are persecuted by jews You can face terrible persecution in Israel from the Jewish people if you attempt to proclaim the gospel. So who's the group that is under fire the most in that short discussion of what's going on in our world? Bible-believing Christians. Congratulations, you are part of the worst persecuted group on the planet. Hated by all, atheists and pagans, fellow so-called evangelical Christians who mock and laugh at us, liberalization of various ethnicities in this country, and, in many ways, the Jewish people. How would you expect not to get nailed being a Bible-believing Christian in the world today? Right? And so when we come in verse 7 that we will be tested by fire, this is speaking truth. Truth that most people don't want to hear. So as you filled in, proven faith will be continuously tested. Now, let's take these two aspects of what's being talked about here in verse 7, where it's talked about proven faith is more precious than gold, and then tested by fire. And you can see then that God, the Spirit of God, is increasing the tension here. The first tension is proven faith is more precious than gold. The tension there is, I love money. I don't like this comparison. And then Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, maintains the gold analogy and starts talking next about gold being in the crucible or the container where it is melted down and fired. So now... Turning the analogy on its head in verse 6, the Spirit of God is now taking that precious commodity of gold and setting it on fire. Tested by fire. But it's really not a discussion about gold. It's just a metaphor. As gold is put under fire to be purified, proven faith will always be tested by fire. The implication here is, You can't ever, and I can't ever be the Christian that we are meant to be without three words in the middle of verse 7, tested by fire. It doesn't get better. The more you live for Jesus Christ, the worse it's going to get. So, points one and two to recap these two aspects of verse 7 between the dotted lines. Number one, Peter first taught us that proven faith is more precious faith is more precious faith. More valuable than anything on earth, even gold. Proven faith is more precious faith, more valuable than anything on earth, even gold. Stop right there. It's Kind of like in the gospel I was giving this morning, if you, not you in front of me, but if a person... Can't get past the first word of the gospel, repentance, and doesn't see themselves as a horrific sinner, there's no point going any further. This is really what we should be doing in our evangelistic presentations, is just dealing with the issue of sin first. So, do you see yourself as a horrific sinner? If the person says no, why would you go on any further? That's pointless. If you can't get past the stumbling block of one's own sin, the rest of the gospel is not going to make any sense. If I can't get past that first point of suffering that is more precious than anything on earth, even gold, the rest of this discussion is pointless. If I'm so transfixed by financial security, finances, money, if that drives all my decision-making, how could I ever take a step further into the pit of suffering with point number two? So analyze that first statement. If this is something you simply cannot accept at this point in your life, I encourage you, go on your smartphone, drop the menu down, activate Bluetooth, quickly put those earplugs into your ears and jack up the music. Drown the rest of this discussion out because it's just not going to hit home. Point number two, now Peter next is teaching us that proven faith is purified faith. Now we like that, that blank to fill in that we start with on point two. We can all say amen to that. Purified faith, yeah, who doesn't want to be pure? I want to be holy. Second Peter chapter 1. Peter begins his second epistle with a discussion of holiness. Be holy as he is holy. Amen, amen, amen. But the problem here, the stumbling block... Of the truth of the word of god is you can't enter into purity fully without the rest of the statement filled in you want to be pure you really It's like many people say they want to have patience i wish i was a more patient christian you do understand from james what that means don't you that if you're asking for patience you're asking for suffering same here you really want to be pure God has wired and created this Christian faith to not occur where you will be purified in a growing way on a bed of roses and ease. Fill it in. Purified faith is being tested in the fire of suffering. Isn't it interesting that two major spiritual analogies in the Bible use the concept of fire? One is hell place of eternal fire as I was dramatically seeking to describe the truth of revelation on that issue this morning. The fire is not the fires of purification in hell. There is no purification in hell. There's no reform. There's no restitution. As one is as they enter into hell is as we are when we enter into heaven. As we cannot cease to follow Christ as Lord in perfection in heaven, true believers, no unbeliever in hell can renounce their wickedness in hell and repent. The fires are fires of judgment. The second analogy of fire used in the scriptures is purification, tested in the fires of suffering. Now we need to microscope this because the Greek is very plain here. So a little letter A under the dotted line actually goes with that point two further above. I know it's a confusing way to lay out a note sheet. In your heart, you can despise me for this, and I will accept that despicable corruption to the note sheet but little letter a where it says even though look up here you go around this interlude and it's connected to point two up here y'all see that Go around and up to here i needed to make a comparison between what was before in verse seven to what comes next in verse seven And so I kind of stuck the filling into the donut in between with those two points. But the letter A continues the actual outline of the series, which is above letter B, the nature of proven faith. Point number two, proven faith will be continuously tested by fire. Now you drop down to letter A and we run into two words before tested by fire that tell us something extremely important even though, tells us something very important. Even though, I've given you just the two-letter word that is in the Greek for even though, it is day. Technically, it's a concessive participle. It gives a concession. And so what that brings into the equation is a negativity. Write it down under that little letter A. Even though, it brings in a negativity. And what's the negativity tested by fire? This is a warning statement, even though. It can also translate day as but. It's a harsher, more strict contrast. This is important. The Spirit of God is not naive. He's our Holy Spirit who lives within us. He's God of the universe. He's omniscient. This is bad tested by fire, and even though is pointing that out. Now, What's the negativity? The negativity is this. Let me give you an analogy. Boy, riding that, whole, that roller coaster at Great America is fun, especially that wooden one that gets to the top, even though when you come down the other side, you'll fall out of the car. <laughs> what? Say that again? Well, it's wonderful to go up that roller coaster. It's so fun. You're waiting to go over the other side. It's so enjoyable, even though when you turn the corner, you'll fall out of the car. Proven faith. More precious than gold. Oh, that's wonderful. I want to love you and suffer in the joy of Christ. And have an attitude in my heart that it is more precious than gold. That is so encouraging to me. And then the Spirit says, even though... We fall out of the roller coaster car and the tested by fire. It's like we're ecstatically having an epiphany of supreme devotion to Jesus Christ. This is wonderful. I've rededicated my life to the Lord. Joy in the midst of suffering. This God sees is greater than gold. Amen. Amen. Even though, what? What? Say what? Even though. Boom. Fire comes into the equation now. Gold and faith are fired in order to get better and better. Write that down under letter A. Gold and faith need to be fired to get better and better. Fire destroys, we naturally consider it's called eternal destruction in hell Fires, the fires of hell are eternal destruction it doesn't annihilate it destroys eternally it's a state of the soul of unsaved humans the minds that's the minds the mind is eternal a human mind is a massively incredibly powerful thing that god has created It, it, it cannot be destroyed in this universe god could destroy a mind if he chose to but he does not the human mind once it exists in a human body cannot be destroyed annihilated in other words That mind with a new perfect body goes to heaven if it's born again, and that mind in a hell body that can withstand the fires of judgment forever remains intact. Personality is still there. The people that we know tragically that are unsaved and ended up in hell have some semblance of the personality they had here. cannot be annihilated, the human mind. And we believe in our weakness that if the fires of judgment in this life, and that's what this fire is referring to, not hell, fires of suffering in this life, we believe if it gets any worse, it will destroy me. That's our natural inclination. If this trial in my life gets any worse, it will destroy me. Fire cannot destroy proven faith cannot it purifies so it's our carnality that assumes the trials will destroy faith and if the trials get worse the faith will fall so there's a warning here even though something worse is going to happen tested by fire even though speaks to a increase of problem this is problematic It will increase in your life, even though you will face the fires of suffering. It will not fall if you're a true believer. We would naturally assume that the fires of suffering will destroy and not purify your faith. So this is where we have to come back now again to self-examination. As trials get worse in your life, is it naturally your spiritual condition to assume this is helping you to be more purified? Or do you naturally assume if trials get any worse for me, I can't take it and I will fall? This is important under letter 8. This is a technical term for what is going on here in verse 7, where it says, even though tested by fire. This is counterintuitive. Have you ever heard that word? Counterintuitive means contrary to common sense, contrary to intuition, It's much akin to, like, you can't swim, you stand on the edge of a swimming pool, and someone says, if you jump into the deep end, you will not drown. That's counterintuitive. Common sense says, I can't swim. If I jump into the deep end, I will drown. Common sense is being destroyed in the middle of verse 7. The more you are fired up by trials, the more you will be purified. That's counterintuitive. The Christian life must operate in the realm not of common sense But in truth, no. No, no, if I jump in a deep end, I'll drown. No, 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 if these trials living for Jesus Christ get any worse, I will drown in faithlessness. Do you see what Peter is saying? Not if you have proven faith. Not if you are a true believer. The increase of fire then under letter A, Is an increase of difficulty that for the true believer will purify, for the false believer, the fire will destroy. Fire is neutral, it will either destroy or it will purify based on whether the faith is real or not. This is what marks people out in our churches as to whether they're real or not. It is a test of fire. The fire distinguishes, the fire divides true faith from false faith. Fire cannot, absolutely the sufferings of fire cannot destroy the faith of a true believer. We may falter and stumble at times, but we will find inevitably the Spirit will hang on to us and draw us further into growing faith and purity. Trials are not meant to break us into into despair. They prove us into being pure. They increase purity. So you have to ask yourself in this warm client, this Florida climate of the church today, metaphorically, relax, what's the hurry? The lounge chair next to the pool mentality of Christianity today. I live for Jesus, I will grow in wealth. Comfort awaits me. It's everywhere in the Christian church today. As I've said to you, add infinitum to probably your annoyance. It's a very basic fundamental reason why Christians move away from bad areas. They are wired into seeking comfort and avoiding the fires of dangerous areas. It's not about property. It's about safety. It's about economic safety. It's about personal safety. Christians follow the culture. They run from harm. We should have known at the Great Commission that that was never the calling of believers, right? Running from harm. Think about it. Mark 16's version of the Great Commission is go into all the world and preach the gospel, right? Question number one is the world a really bad place? Question number two is the world filled to the brim with Christ and Christian hating humans? So, what is the command? Run into the fire or run from the fire? Go into all the world. Why did somebody tell us that when we got converted? Hey, guess what? You, wait, before you pray that prayer, that magic prayer to be saved, you know what's going to happen? No, know what's going to happen? Your life is going to take a turn for the worse. Hmm. should have well John did you tell everybody that you've given the gospel to that did you do that this morning no I didn't have the time ran out of time this morning but sometime somewhere down in the discipleship process after you lead someone to Christ we've got to tell them the good bad news the good news is you're going to have fire that's going to purify if you're truly safe the bad news is you're going to have fire that's going to purify if you're truly safe the bad news and the good news are the same you're going to be fired that's why it's the sermon title there, Fired Up Faith. Hmm. Even though tested by fire. Oh my goodness, even though. <sighs> That's right. Letter B. The trial then has nothing to do with whether I will have joy or not. This is a major Biblical principle I have repeated so much in this series on joy with suffering. The trial then has nothing to do with whether I have joy or not. Proven faith will have more fire. Proven faith will have more fire. And will have more joy the greater the heat of trials. Proven faith is going to face more fire the the even though is referring not to precious not to gold the even though is referring to proven faith proven faith is the um grammatical anchor of verse seven proven faith being more precious than gold even though even though it proven faith will be tested by fire this gives us a reason why godly people suffer And the more godly you are, the more you will suffer for the faith. Why? Because God wants the godly believer to keep growing. Rebellion and backsliding in a Christian stops the growth process. So God chastises and disciplines that rebellious believer so that they will start moving again on the faith journey. And if they refuse under the chastisement of God to move back to the faith journey and to suffering for Christ with joy, then God will eventually execute that wayward believer and take them home. This is meant to be. You are going to suffer. I am going to suffer. Get with it. Get in the saddle. The horse of suffering you need to ride and it will always be fired up. Trial has nothing to do whether I, whether I have joy or not. It's the legitimacy of my faith that determines that. The fire here is just meant to purify. Write that under letter B. The fire is meant to purify. So, if trials wipe out our faith and joy, the faith was never real to begin with. The type of faith I have determines whether I will have joy when suffering or not. The type of faith I have determines whether I will grow in purity or not. Do you understand that? When I run into counseling over the years, someone is ready to give up the faith because of their hardships. It raises a question and a doubt Is this person really a legitimate believer? Because God brings the fires of suffering in to purify. The person should be talking about how they're winning their war with the flesh more because they are suffering. That is essentially what Peter is saying. If you want more help winning against the flesh, if you want to be more holy and less carnal, then you need to be fired up under suffering for Jesus Christ. This is crazy to so many today. Are you telling me if I witness more, I will be purified? Yeah, because what happens when you witness more? Will they love you for that? No. In faith, your faith will grow. When you witness more at work, will they hate you more? Yes. When you witness more in your family and refuse to compromise with wicked unbelievers, will they hate you more? Yes. So witnessing has a direct connection to being fired, and fired-up Christianity purifies. It drives you to cling more to eternal values rather than the things of this world, which the two that I've mentioned that bring great persecution are work environments and family. Terrible persecution. So we want to put the fire out by stopping our mouths from witnessing and then we don't suffer. And then when you don't suffer, what happens to purity? You become impure. Holiness dies, horrific carnality increases. We have a consequence for ignoring the Great Commission because of suffering, a dire consequence. The consequence is you backslide, you backslide into impurity. You, you and I can't get away from this. We stop evangelizing. We stop the Great Commission. We stop living for Christ in a wicked work and family environment. What happens is we will backslide. Fire will purify. And it reveals whether our faith is legitimate or not. Perspective number five at the bottom of your note sheet then, on joy in the midst of suffering. Fiery trials cannot negate joy. Underneath that, for the true believer, fiery trials cannot negate joy. Underneath that, for the true believer, fiery trials increase purity. Write that under perspective five. Fiery trials are meant to purify you. This is the analogy the heat purifies, just as it does with gold, it will do with your precious, proven faith. If you're a true believer, trials, fiery trials, will purify you, drives you away from this world. You think a Christian who is being tortured for the faith in a Muslim jail is hung up about whether they're gonna have enough money for retirement? You think a persecuted, tortured Christian in an Afghanistan jail is worrying about their IRA has crashed 20% in the last two years? You think they're gonna struggle with a love for money you think an Afghanistan born-again Christian who's suffering for the faith and refuses to recant, you think they're worried about the fact that their Netflix isn't working and it's buffering all the time? You think that Afghanistan Christian being tortured in jail would agree with you when you and I gripe and whine because our jobs or our employers don't treat us very nice? You think that Afghanistan Christian in jail would long to trade places with you and seize the trials that we face as American Christians are nothing. That's why we're carnal. We avoid the fires of suffering at any cost, so we become carnal. Great uh, Greek scholar Cleon Rogers, in his commentary on verse 7 here, quotes Pliny on how gold was, Greek historian Pliny, on how gold was mined and refined in Roman times. Quote, metals are mined, cleaned, fired, and ground to a powder and put in a smelting furnace. Gold really has to be attacked, in other words, to get it pure. Mined, cleaned, fired and then ground up into powder then put in a smelting furnace. The slag called scoria from gold is pounded again and fired a second time. The crucible for this, crucibles or the containers are made of tasconium, this is ancient times, which is a white earth resembling clay. No other earth clay at that time could withstand the blast of air, the fire, or the intensely hot material. That is a violent process, folks, to purify gold. Greek scholar Wiest, in his commentary on First Peter, says this, quote, the picture here is of an ancient goldsmith, this tested by fire analogy here, who put his crude gold ore in a crucible, Subjects it to intense heat and then liquefies the mass. Do you ever feel that's your trial? You're crude. You're subjected to intense persecution and you feel in your soul like you're turning to liquid. Yeah. The impurities rise to the surface and are skimmed off. That's how they, by the way, decaffeinate coffee. I don't know if you knew that or not. The coffee beans, they boil them. The caffeine floats as foam to the top, and then they skim it off. There's no such thing as uncaffeinated coffee, just decaffeinated. Did you know that? Because they can't do that perfectly. Bummer. So even when you're drinking decaffeinated, you're getting some caffeine. Beware. But with gold, they can get this to almost perfection. Heat, impurities float up, skim off. Heat, impurities float up, skim off. How does he know when the metal is absolutely purified? Gold metal. Here it is. When the metal worker is able to see the reflection of his face clearly mirrored in the surface of the liquid, he takes it off the fire. For he knows that the contents are pure gold. Did you catch that? He looks as he raises on the end of the iron pole and he looks in the surface of the liquefied gold and if it's still blurry and not clear as a mirror back into the fire he keeps skimming and doing that till the surface of the purified gold shows his own visage in absolute clarity do you understand the analogy then why does god continuously put us in the crucible and fire of trials What is he trying to get reflected in you, the image of Jesus Christ and I? When it reaches the clarity that God is the sovereign Lord and Master determines for your life, then he takes you out of the fire until the next time. Because once we're cooled off and removed from the fire, we who are untrustworthy children of God inevitably start slowly operating towards carnality again. Thus, back into the fire. Slowly withdraw from spirituality, back into the fire. I think God knows what he's doing. We said, so it is with God and his child, he says. He puts us in the crucible of Christian suffering in which process, sin, is gradually put out of our lives. Our faith is purified from the slag of unbelief. That somehow mingles with it so often and the result is a reflection of the face of Jesus Christ in the character of a Christian there is a tripwire effect with suffering for Christ and I'm not talking about the sufferings that unbelievers go through as well not talking about the tragedies of life that can happen like your house can get broken in like an unbeliever and your car can break down like an unbeliever this is suffering for Christ he's talking about faith suffering for the Lord There's a tripwire that occurs, a dead man's switch that is flicked. There comes a point that a Christian is so fired and so purified and heated by trials that in the mind of that Christian, they finally reach a point where they say, None of this matters anymore. I don't care about anything in this world anymore. I just want to go and be with my Savior. The purified image of Jesus Christ is manifest. It takes ongoing testing by fire over and over again because our minds as believers are so messed with sin and we constantly go back to the passing pleasures of sin and we resist trials so much because we're so foolish. This is the God that you and I have as our Savior. This is a shock. I thought Jesus was just a Savior from hell. I didn't know any of this. This is solid food. The passage I was going to go into was Hebrews this morning. As my breakout text from Titus 2 I'm not going to steal the fire from February 26th on this, but I want to point out something to you that I hit, didn't even get to this morning. Verse 11 is where we as believers inevitably degradate to. Do you know what that word degradate means? Degradation? If you don't know what degradation means, just look in the mirror every day. You're seeing it. So am I. Oh, I didn't have that wart there. Ooh, look at that clump of hair now on the sink. Look at those bags. The one bag under my eyes is bigger than the other. That's degradation. We inevitably degradate spiritually, and that's verse 11. Concerning this is Hebrews 5:11. Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain of the word of God, since you have become, become over time, inevitably, what? Dull of hearing." Hebrews 5:11. Uh, Dull of hearing. sluggish, Nothros lazy. This is when we're left to our own lives and devices, this is where we end up. This is it. Dull of hearing? nathros. Lazy. I don't want to hear any more of that teaching. I've had enough. Thank you very much. I just want to relax and coast. Coasting and relaxing in the Christian life is terminal. It destroys your Christian life. Dull of hearing is, I'm not listening anymore, ding, 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 I don't want to hear it. This is why inevitably, when somebody backslides, they backslides out of fellowship of church. Hebrews 10 talks about this. This is axiomatic. Axiomatic means this is a law that cannot be broken. Nobody moves up and in on church fellowship when they're backsliding. They move back and out. They don't want to hear it anymore. Verse 12. Every one of us should be teachers. Did you know that? If you want to know what one of the wills of God is for your life as a believer, you should be teaching others in church. It says right there in verse 12, that's how far we've fallen. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need for the basics in the Christian life. You need milk because you're babies. And you don't accept solid food. What I'm teaching you about suffering, folks, is solid food. Solid food. Solid food in verse 13 is food that causes righteousness. It is the word of righteousness. The word of righteousness in verse 13 is a synonym for solid food. The baby Christian says, I don't want any of this. No, thank you. I'm preoccupied with other things in my life right now. I don't really want to hear this negativity. I'm saved. That's it. Baby. Just drinking the milk here, that's all. Solid food is how you have righteousness. What I'm teaching, what Peter is telling us, go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. What Peter is telling us here, this is solid food. Only a mature Christian can handle what's being basically dumped on us in verse 7. Only a godly Christian can wrap their head around this. This is panic city for the carnal believer I'm cornered by verse 7. I have to go through more fire. I'm just getting my head above water. What's the deal with this? I don't want anything to do with this. Don't tell me that my faith will survive. It can't. God has abandoned me. I don't know what he's doing. He's a confusing, ambiguous God who's capricious and really is a sadist who does things to me that I never wanted and that he's laughing at me. carnal believer thinks this way. God is profoundly untrustworthy. And this is unfair. When I examine my life compared to others, I'm getting the shaft. Godly Christian rises above all of this. He wants the filth skimmed out of his life. And he knows that it is hardened like a hardened artery in the mind, the sin nature. And so prone to wander, so prone to wander, so easily dulled and hardened, not throst, given over to laziness, indolence, and no conscience. This is where I gravitate. I can't stop that degradation. So God intervenes with fire. And starts blasting us with the heat of suffering if we will only yield to suffering for Christ and rejoice in our salvation. Then the fire comes on and starts to force that indolent, nathros, dull of hearing mine to cling to teaching more I need so much more I'm drowning in my sin bring it on bring it on I need more I need more I am not going to survive spiritually unless God intervenes and he intervenes through fires of testing to strip us down till we finally say okay I'm done resisting I'm not going to, as a wrestler, try to keep my two shoulders off the canvas, Lord. You've pinned me. You've trapped me in suffering. I'm going to release all of my resistance. You're the divine wrestler. I'm on the canvas of life. I yield. One, two, three, down and out. None of this matters anymore. I'm giving up my will once and for all. This is the classic theologians called this, the supreme dedication of your entire life to Jesus Christ as a believer. The abandonment of everything, all you're after is a purification of holiness. And you accept, you accept that testing by fire is absolutely essential. The Nathras believer will kiss this type of teaching off and with rage and anger and ignorance and willfulness walk away and say, No! No! comes back to what I said this morning for unbelievers. What do you want with your life as an unbeliever? What are the choices that you're making in your life as a believer tonight? There's no way around the fire. Your proven faith will be fired. It'll be hot and it will burn. And it purifies. How bad do you want purity? Do you want just a little purity? A little growth, a little quiet time, a little church, a little service. Now leave me alone. I've got plans, I've got a life. I'm going to do what I want. This is what I want. I don't want any suffering. I want this purity without the suffering. You say that, John. I'm going to dump it on you. I'm going to shoot the messenger right now. That's your opinion of Christianity. I weasel out from under the authority by blaming this sermon tonight on simply your opinion. It says right there in verse 7, It's not my words. Father in heaven, I wished I was godly enough to say bring the fire on, but that scares the living daylights off of me, Lord. I, I'm i not there. I don't know that any of us would ever be there where we would pray for the testings of fire. And we're thankful, Lord, that you just then do it, knowing that we're too cowardice, too cowardly to ask for it. So we'll just trust you as a kind, all-powerful, beneficent, loving, infinitely wise God to know how much fire, how long in the kiln, how long we are melting in the crucible of life is necessary. And then when you see the reflection of you in us, you pull us back a little. The heat diminishes. We look back at a horrific suffering for Christ incident that you saw us through. And we rejoice that you saw us through it, Lord. And we're back hot for God and the word and repentance. And then we turn the TV on. Or start whining. Or get distracted. And the crucible cools off. And the heart says, well, yes, I was hot for you, Jesus, but I'll read my Bible tomorrow. And we start to move towards Nathras, once again, inevitably. How you put up with us. And so your loving hand has saved us through the cross of our blessed Savior and the only God and Savior who could save us. That Jesus who reached down in space and time, you Lord Jesus, and gave the supreme sacrifice for us, dying for us, as a God who knows best. You're our precious, loving Lord, and you start turning the furnace heat up once again to fire us in the kiln of trials, and the purity battle starts to be won all over again. Fire cool, fire cool. Fire cool, and as this happens, Lord, we progress hesitatingly uphill, then downhill, but progressing. We're progressing in Christ's likeness, and it is absolutely necessary to have fire to do that. Why can't we just stop squirming under Your Lordship plan for our lives? Why do we have to resist so inevitably? And so long term, and for some so terminally, that there's no fixing the person anymore, and you have to execute them. Hmm. So we pray if we're godly here tonight, with fear and trembling, our hands shaking, test us with fire. I'm a coward. I don't want to be burned. And I'm fearful of the fire. I inevitably want to pull my hand out of the flames, Lord. But you know what's best. I just want to be pure. By your grace and power, Lord Jesus, may that be all of our prayers. In your name. Amen.